Brought to you by GSK. Unlike ski season, shingles doesn't have an off season, and it can strike at any time. So don't wait to vaccinate your patients. Learn more by visiting shinglesseason.com. Hello and welcome to the September 5th, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief. As summer ends and the school year begins in Philadelphia, where I live and work, I'm looking forward to both cooler weather following this very hot summer and also to letting you know about the new material you will find on annals.org. Artificial intelligence is getting a lot of attention these days, and the first two articles I'll highlight relate to its use in colonoscopy. One article reports a randomized control trial that found that colonoscopy assisted by computer-aided detection did not lead to improved detection of advanced colorectal neoplasias. Screening for colorectal cancers greatly improved mortality rates due to the greater detection of malignant and premalignant lesions. Systems relying on artificial intelligence using deep learning technology have been linked to improved adenoma detection rates, but there are concerns that the improved adenoma detection rates are due to better detection of clinically insignificant lesions rather than detection of advanced or clinically significant lesions. This trial randomly assigned more than 3,000 persons with a positive fecal immunochemical test to colonoscopy with or without computer-assisted detection to evaluate the contribution of computer assistance to colonoscopic detection of advanced colorectal neoplasias, adenomas, serrated polyps, and non-polypoid and right-sided lesions. Fit-positive patients were chosen because this group has the highest prevalence of advanced colorectal neoplasias and therefore offers the best context for investigating the ability of computer-aided detection to support the diagnosis of advanced colorectal neoplasia. The researchers found no significant difference in advanced colorectal neoplasia detection rate or the mean number of advanced colorectal neoplasias detected per colonoscopy between the two groups. A small effect was observed in increasing number of non-polypoid lesions, proximal adenomas, and small lesions of 5 millimeters or less, clinically insignificant lesions, suggesting a need for additional research and more defined detection parameters before routinely integrating artificial intelligence into colonoscopy. The second article is a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized control trials, including the trial I just described involving more than 18,000 participants and also concluding that the use of computer assistance for polyp detection during colonoscopy resulted in an increased detection of polyps and polyp removal, but not detection of advanced adenomas, the types of polyps at highest risk of cancer progression. The authors found the use of computer assistance was associated with an increase in the removal of non-neoplastic polyps and a marginal increase in mean inspection time. They note that the studies mostly involved experienced endoscopists, and artificial intelligence may be more helpful to less experienced operators. Next is another systematic review meta-analysis. This one found that sociodemographic lifestyle and medical factors, including age over 70, hypertension, higher body mass index, diabetes, and cancer, were associated with lower testosterone concentrations. Lower testosterone concentrations are associated with a range of poor health outcomes in aging men, but it remains unclear whether reduced testosterone production is intrinsic to malaging or reflects accumulation of age-related comorbid condition. Researchers from the University of Western Australia conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis of 11 studies comprising individual participant data from 21,074 men and aggregate data from 4,075 men. The authors analyzed concentrations of testosterone, dihydrotestosterone, and estradiol. 
They found that testosterone concentrations did not differ with age until 70 years, after which testosterone concentrations decreased and luteinizing hormone concentrations increased, suggesting impaired testicular production of testosterone. Testosterone concentrations were slightly lower in men who were married, less physically active, were former smokers, or had hypertension, cardiovascular disease, or on lipid-lowering medications. Testosterone concentrations were notably lower in men with higher body mass index or with a history of cancer or diabetes. The authors recommend that interpretation of testosterone measurements in individual men should account particularly for age older than 70 years, higher BMI, and the presence of diabetes or cancer. Additional research is needed to determine the health implications of reduced testosterone production in men above the age of 70 years. Go to annals.org to read the article and watch a brief video summarizing the review. Shootings in the U.S. have become such a regular occurrence that they barely make the news. Recent days have seen shootings at a baseball game in Chicago, Illinois, and a store in Jacksonville, Florida. While shootings are often fatal, there are many non-fatal shootings, and data are scarce about what happens to these survivors. Previous evaluations have estimated that non-fatal firearm injuries occur at twice the rate of fatal firearm injuries, but this may be an underestimate. Next is a study of more than 10,000 people who survived a firearm injury that found that recurrent injury is common among these survivors. Survivors experiencing recurrent injury were most often young, black, male, and uninsured. Researchers from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis participated in the development of the St. Louis region-wide hospital-based violence intervention program data repository. The repository houses data on all patients who present to one of the four St. Louis adult or pediatric level one trauma hospitals with a violent injury, including firearm injury. The authors identified 9,553 persons who survived initial firearm injury and observed that 1,155 of them experienced a recurrent firearm injury over an average follow-up period of three and a half years. The authors found that persons experiencing recurrent firearm injury were often young. They report that 93% of persons with recurrent injury were male, 96% were black, and half were uninsured. Most resided in areas of high social vulnerability. They also found that the estimated risk for firearm re-injury increased each year, beginning at a 7% risk after one year and increasing to 17% at eight years. According to the authors, their findings highlight the need for interventions including community-based care, counseling, and substance use disorder screening to prevent recurrent firearm injury and death. Antipsychotics are commonly used to manage postoperative delirium, and older surgical patients are at risk for postoperative delirium and are also susceptible to the adverse effects of antipsychotics. The next article reports a study that compared the risk of in-hospital adverse events associated with oral low-dose haloperidol, olanzapine, ketapine, and respiridone in 2,735 patients aged 65 years and older after major surgery without pre-existing psychiatric disorders who prescribed an oral antipsychotic drug after major surgery in 2009 through 2018. Among the four antipsychotics of interest, ketapine was most often prescribed. The risk of in-hospital death among patients was about 3% and did not differ by medication prescribed for delirium. The authors concluded that among older patients who were prescribed an oral low-dose antipsychotic drug after major surgery, 
the risk of in-hospital death and other adverse events were similar across these four drugs. The next three articles all relate to the affordability of prescription drugs in the United States. The first of these reports a study that evaluated low-cost generic programs that expand access to affordable cardiovascular disease medications. It is important that low-cost drug programs offer essential medications that promote evidence-based prescribing. During February through March 2022, the researchers evaluated the availability of guideline-recommended cardiovascular drugs in 19 publicly available low-cost generic drug programs. They unfortunately found that the accessibility of the evidence-based medications was suboptimal in these programs, with substantial variation in availability by program and clinical condition. To optimize health outcomes, the authors say that these pharmacies offering low-cost generic drug programs should expand accessibility by offering more essential evidence-based cardiovascular disease drugs. Studies have found that often bypassing insurance-educated processes can reduce out-of-pocket costs and overall drug spending, showing that self-pay pharmacy prices such as the $4 generic at retail stores such as Walmart, Target, and Costco can be lower than the out-of-pocket copay required by insurers. Discount card programs are another avenue to potentially lower out-of-pocket costs, especially for patients who are uninsured, underinsured, or enrolled in high-deductible plans. The next article estimates the proportion and extent of insurer out-of-pocket payments exceeding Amazon Prime and GoodRx Gold discount card pricing for commonly prescribed generic medications using data from the 2020 Medical Expenditure Panel Survey. The researchers found that similar to generic self-pay pharmacy prices, out-of-pocket payments required by insurance frequently exceeded discount card pricing. The third article related to drug pricing is a commentary on insulin pricing. The pricing of U.S. prescription drugs is complex. A drug's list price, determined by its manufacturer, is generally higher than its net price, which is the amount ultimately collected by the manufacturer. This is because manufacturers usually provide price concessions to pharmacy benefit managers, health insurers, and other supply chain entities. For cash-paying patients and insured patients in the deductible phase, List prices typically are aligned with their out-of-pocket expenditures for insured patients subject to coinsurance. List prices usually serve as the basis for calculating patients' out-of-pocket costs. However, because price concessions are not passed on to patients, patients rarely benefit from the lower net prices negotiated by their insurers and pharmacy benefit managers. The commentary discusses these issues in the context of recent policies around insulin pricing. The American College of Physicians has issued a new paper addressing current controversies about the standards for determining death, supporting a clarification for the Uniform Determination of Death Act, but otherwise reaffirming the current Uniform Definition of Death Act and the ethical principles that are at its foundation. Highly publicized legal cases have challenged the standards used to determine brain death, and clinical questions have arisen about the use of the word irreversible when death is declared sparking re-examination of the Uniform Determination of Death Act. The Uniform Law Commission appointed a committee that has been debating whether to revise the 1981 Act, the legal standard in the United States. Competing revisions have been proposed, including everything from eliminating brain death altogether to stipulating that brain death means only the loss of certain specified functions. Also of concern is the extent to which issues of organ transplantation and organ availability seem to be influencing efforts to modify the Uniform Determination of Death Act. 
While revisiting this more than 40-year-old act is clearly indicated, ACP urges caution and recommends that only a clarification revision is needed. Also new is a commentary titled The Case for Flourishing in the Time of Wellness. The commentary begins with this scenario. Imagine yourself as a medical student doing your surgery clerkship. You're excited to scrub into a Whipple, which you have been preparing for over the past week. The morning of the surgery, a fellow student calls in sick, and you're asked to cover that student's duties and have to miss the Whipple. On the way home, you stop by a restaurant to pick up dinner and see the student who called in sick. The student is clearly not sick and is enjoying dinner with friends. The supposedly sick student explained they took the day off for wellness. The commentary discusses whether the absence for wellness was acceptable or simply an example of unprofessional behavior. The authors discuss the situation and introduce the concept of flourishing as a more holistic approach that balances wellness and professionalism. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope I piqued your interest in some of the new material I've mentioned. Stay well, and please return in two weeks for the next Annals podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Unlike ski season, shingles doesn't have an off-season, and it can strike at any time. So don't wait to vaccinate your patients. Learn more by visiting shinglesseason.com.